Turn with me over to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The title of the message is Next Generation Leadership. Next Generation Leadership. Isaiah is prophesying, and he says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness. Help us as we study your word. Amen. There are four things about which I'd like to concentrate regarding this passage. One, generational help. Two, governmental stability. Three, get a giant title to try to understand who God is. And then four, what it means for God's zeal to accomplish this. Isaiah is an amazing prophet. I don't know that he's any better than all the other prophets, but he sure does get more press. God gives him the privilege of having more print than any other prophetic voice in the Old Testament. His rival in terms of numbers of pages or chapters would probably be Jeremiah, but it's really close, really close. Isaiah served under four kings, uh, kind of five, but we believe the fifth one killed him, so he, re he really didn't get to serve under him. The first one was Uzziah. The second was Uzziah's son, Jotham. The third was Jotham's son, Ahaz. And the fourth was Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's son. Generally speaking, all four of these guys were pretty good. Jotham, not as good. Ahaz, not as good. Bookended by Uzziah and Hezekiah. Hezekiah and Uzziah were really good kings. Uzziah did some things at the end of his reign that probably should have been done a whole lot better. But Hezekiah made some mistakes too, but he was described as the best king Judah ever had. Now, that doesn't mean he was the best king that Israel, the entire nation itself, one contiguous people had, because David was that. And Isaiah was the prophet. A contemporary in Isaiah's day would be Micah. Now, there may have been some other prophetic voices around. In fact, at some point, Isaiah actually calls his wife in chapter 8. I went, he says, I went into the prophetess to speak with her and to commune with her. And so it seems like she had a prophetic voice. Um, so there may have been other prophetic voices in that day, but there were two that, got an, that had enough clout and enough accuracy to be able to require that their words be put in canon. Holy writ. Pretty amazing in one generation. So you had fairly good kings, and then you had some phenomenal prophets but the people, they had some issues. Not as right as they should be. Isaiah starts in chapter 1 with a corrective word. Now, you know it's bad when God says, I do not want you to bring any more sacrifices to church. I mean, he's already prescribed the sacrifices ought to be brought. But he's telling this people, stop. I don't want another bull. I don't want another pigeon. I don't want another goat. I don't want you to sacrifice anything to me anymore. I'm done with it. Well, why would God say that? Well, primarily 
because the people were substituting their sacrifice for their obedience. And so they were doing their best to try to say, God, on Sunday, I'm great. But you're not really concerned about what I do on, on Tuesday, are you? Or Saturday night, are you? You're not really con- As long as I go ahead and bring the right sacrifice, that covers over everything else, right? As long as I can give my religious obedience at the, at the, at the specified time in the specified way, Wednesday doesn't really matter. And this is where we get the famous phrase, come, let us reason together, God says in Isaiah chapter 1. God is not saying, come let us reason together because he's looking for more wisdom, which he does not have. And by the way, if he ever needed wisdom, you would probably be the last person he would ask to get it. He has it all. He lacks nothing. This is, this is what makes him God. This is the characteristics one of the characteristics that define him as being different than us. He doesn't lack anything, and he's got everything. So when he says, come let us reason together, he's not saying, let us have a powwow so we can put our mental capacities together and figure out a solution to this problem. What he's saying is, you need help, and I need to reveal to you how bad you are off. You, you are so far from center. How do you believe that it's okay to bring a sacrifice on Sunday? Theirs would be Saturday. A sacrifice on Sunday. And defraud your business partner on Wednesday. Drive hard your workers in a way that's unrighteous. Cheat them of their wages. Treat your wife poorly. Be harsh to your children. How How do you think that's right? You're living at the ultimate state of hypocrisy. Thus, God says... Stop all that other stuff you're doing that you consider religious. I consider what you're doing on Wednesday irreligious. And you are defiling all of your sacrifice by your disobedience to me midweek. Stop it. I will not let you believe that this will cover that. That's how Isaiah starts off. And it goes downhill from there. Downhill from there. More disobedience. Nobody's listening to what he's got to say. Ah, nobody. Not many gets so bad that now the people are experiencing the consequences of their disobedience. You get to chapter 8, and he's not only talking about current day, but he's talking about future. So Isaiah is a prophet that lived right about 740, well, prophesied, 740 B.C. down to 680 B.C. So he had about a 60-year reign with respect to prophetic utterance. Pretty amazing. And he was a southern prophet, now, that, that doesn't mean he spoke with a draw. It means he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, which was Judah. At this time, there were two kingdoms that made up Israel. There was Israel to the north and the city of Samaria. And then there was Judah to the south and the city of Jerusalem. Those were the capitals of the respective kingdoms. And they had their own prophets for the most part. Isaiah prophesies to Judah, but now he's prophesying more to Israel than he is Judah, the northern kingdom. And he talks about how they're going to be devastated. You're going to experience the consequences of your disobedience. It's going to be really, really bad. And it's going to be bad for a long time. And indeed, after his prophetic word in 712 B.C., Assyria, a kingdom to the north, comes down and destroys Samaria. Takes the Israelites captive and disperses them to the four corners of the earth. But they leave a remnant there in the northern kingdom. And that remnant is there in order to 
to occupy the area and to produce maybe some income for the Assyrian Empire rather than just letting the land go, go fallow. That remnant is trying to figure out what life looks like now without any spiritual leadership, without any tie to their national identity and their covenantal inheritance from Abraham. And, and now they're ruled by the Assyrians who then would be conquered by the Babylonians, who then would be conquered by the Medes, who then would be conquered by the Persians, who then would be conquered by the Greeks, who then would be conquered by the Romans. We're talking over 600 years of occupation and oppression for the kingdom to the north. And this is where we get Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Bleeding from Isaiah chapter 8, he says, a people who sit in darkness and gloom, ah, they will see a great light. And this passage speaks of the coming Messiah. Indeed, the folks who were in the north that were the remnant were trying to figure out, is God ever going to show? Are we ever going to be relieved from our pain? Are we going to have to be under the burden of our disobedience for the rest of our existence? Is there ever going to be a time when we are reincorporated into his promise and covenant? Oh, God, don't forget us. And here Isaiah says, though you sit in darkness and in gloom, God is sending you a great light. And that light would ultimately be the Messiah. Turns out that the northern kingdom about which he was speaking in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2, are the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, two tribes that were in the northern kingdom that were in the furthest north. Dan was a little bit further north, but these two specifically. And these two happened to be the, the area in which we would, New Testament-wise, call the region of Galilee, the place from which Jesus hailed in ministry. Oh, they got to see a great light. Though they lived in darkness and gloom, look what God did. Now, we, we like to think that Jesus was pretty much, you know, did most of his major ministry in, in Bethlehem. Or, or, excuse me, in Jerusalem. And because he was born in Bethlehem and close to the area of Jerusalem, mm, not so much. He did a lot. And some of his highlights were there because Jerusalem was the capital city and that's where all the smartest theologians were who would take him to task regularly. And Jesus, when he went down for the feasts, would have these conversations and he would make, make a great impact in the community. But then he would go back home. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He had no home in Jerusalem. So he'd go back home. Nazareth was where he hailed from, and the Capernaum was his adult home where his mama was. And so that was the region out of which he ministered regularly. It wasn't Jerusalem. So the people around whom he was ministering constantly were the folks about whom Isaiah prophesied and said, though they sit in darkness, a great light will come to them. They had no idea who this light was. But Jesus tried to make it really plain and I want you to hear me on this point because sometimes we can ignore the light that is presented to us because we want it in a different color. We want it to be a different form. We want it to be a different language. We want it to be a different socioeconomic strata. Jesus stands up one day in his hometown now and he takes a scroll of Isaiah, turns it to Isaiah 61 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor to set the oppressed free, to open the eyes of the blind, and to release the captives. Everybody's sitting in the sanctuary. The, the synagogue was sitting there saying, well, he's good at that, isn't he? 
He can read that scripture. He can read it. The voice inflection, just amazing, amazing. Quite a young man, quite a young man. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> Who does he think he is? Who does he, are you, are you trying, are, you're trying to say that you, we know that's about the Messiah. You're trying to say, you're, oh, no, bro, uh-uh, we know, we know your mama. We know what happened now. We haven't forgotten. 30 years ago, came up pregnant while she was engaged. We know you. We know the Messiah wouldn't come from any kind of illegitimate birth. So, uh-uh, don't you be trying to, no, 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 not here, not here. And what they did in response to this great light, because they did not expect it to come like this. They found the nearest cliff and said, let us throw you off that. And when God doesn't come like we expect him to come, we generally send him away because he doesn't fit our spiritual architectural plan. And may I say, get ready, because when he comes to you, his first, his first job will be to destroy your life. I never get an amen on that, ever. It, it just never flows off your tongue. Why? Because you've constructed it all wrong. What does he say? What did Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, what's the first thing you've got to do? Die. Pick up your cross and die. Because everything that you've planned, all that you want to do, everything you've constructed is messed up. Either it was wrongly motivated or it's wrongly built. And he comes to reconstruct so that you can build well and live well. They, sent, they tried to send him on away, though he was their great light. And I'm, let, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to open up your eyes to let you understand that there is light that has been revealed to you. Receive it. It may not be in the form which you wanted. I might be more flawed than you expected. Or your brother, or your sister, your spiritual mentor, your discipler, whoever it is, might not be what you thought they were supposed to be. But your job is not to judge how God brings things to you as to whether you will receive them. Your job is to take it as it comes. Lord, if you are revealing to me this, I pray that I would receive it, please. Help me to hold on to it. And even if it means the destruction of the fortresses I've built in order to preserve my own life, let it be so, so that I might build something for your glory, not my protection. Let your plan prevail. Your will be done, not mine. They sent him on away. And that great light kept coming back after he went to Jerusalem and just lived there. But they still hated Isaiah says, this is how it's going to happen. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. Now, I don't know that he knew everything about the incarnation like we know about the incarnation, but he knew something because he wasn't just using flowery language here or trying to let everybody know the gender of the child that was coming. But he was doing everything he could to try to convey different ideas through the same concept. That God was going to birth a child, but there is a son who is eternal that is going to be given. We, we understand the Godhead to be a triune God in nature. That he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods. One God, three persons. Three distinct functions as a function in the earth. 
And this is not just a New Testament idea. This is an Old Testament. In fact, it's found right there in Genesis. When God begins the process of creating things and he gets down to man, and after he's made all the other things, everything else, he says, let us make man in our image. He uses plural pronouns, not singular. And he wasn't talking about the angels because the angels can't create anything. Who's he talking to when he says us? Who's he talking about when he says us? Except the triune nature that is him. Let us make man in our image. And so the plurality of God has always been a, a known thing in the Israelite mind, in the Hebrew mind, always. In fact, the word for God, one of the words for God, Elohim, is plural. Doesn't mean many gods. It means, many, means multiple persons in one. The second person of the Godhead is just as much God as the Father. And he always has been. And please understand, that's a doubly redundant statement because there's no way God has not ever been. If something at one point wasn't and then became God, may I help you? It's not God. Because anything that has been created can be destroyed. And if God, your version, has been created at some point, then he can't be destroyed. And he's not much different than you. He's just a different part of creation, which disqualifies him from being God. The definition of God as we know it is that he always has been, he is, and always will be. That gives stability to the universe. Because the universe is that which has been created. Now, I know your children at some point will come and say, Daddy, who made God? Who made God, Daddy? Who made God? Because they don't understand something always being. And it might blow our own minds, but it is so securing because what it means is that since he always has been, there will never be a time when he won't be. He is stable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When everything else changes, you change, your spouse changes, your friends change, your kids change, your job changes, your, your, your living situations, your circumstances, your perspective, everything in the world changes. He's the only thing that remains the same because he always has been. He is and he always will be. That is the son who was given, wrapped himself in flesh, and took on humanity. And this is Merry Christmas, y'all. This is Merry Christmas. The incarnation, 100% God, 100% man, put together in a hypostatic union, which means substance that is not contradictory one to another, put together so that it fits. And nobody figured out how it could fit. I don't know how much Isaiah knew, but he knew this, that a child will be born, but the son will be given. And together, they're going to bring salvation to the world. That combination is going to bring redemption like none other can. A child is born and a son is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Uh, boy, next generation help, they believed it. They knew it was coming. But they didn't know what it would be like. This one is bringing government to help. Now, we, we as a congregation have, have a fairly, fairly big vision. I, I'm hesitant to call it big because it seems like, since I'm the guy who kind of came up with it, that I did something good. 
it, it, God has called us as a congregation to help win this city. And I'm not just talking about Chantilly. I'm talking about the entire metropolitan area. And that's about as big as I can dream, y'all. I, I, I can't dream much bigger than that. Not in reality. Now, there's some other things I can dream about that might be in parallel or subservient to that. But I've had to turn my dream maker off. I just can't think about other stuff because the one vision I've got about winning the city consumes me. I don't know that I will be able to accomplish it in my lifetime. And I know this, that we can't do it even if we grew to 20,000, 30,000 people, which is going to happen at some point if I don't do anything stupid and the church continues to, to, to progress. It's going to happen, but 20,000 is a drop in the bucket to 7.6 million. We still got a ways to go. I'm trying to see the entire city one. So even if we become wildly successful, there's no way we can do it by ourselves. We need the rest of the body of Christ to make this happen. So it's just our part that we need to do. But this is what wakes me up in the morning. I still got to accomplish this, but I don't know. I don't know how. It's a big thing. It's a big thing. So I'm doing all I can to live as long as possible to see it occur. I mean, I, just like you, I've got an appointment with the grave, but I'm doing everything I can to be late. <laughs> Have I told you lately I hate working out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I hate it. But I do it six days a week, hour, 15, 20 minutes at a time, burning over 1,000 calories each time. I am sweating to make sure that I'm strong enough and able enough to be able to accomplish all the things and bear all the stuff that I've got to do on a regular basis. I eat fairly well. I drink nasty stuff called kombucha. Somebody after the second service came and said, uh, you, you just haven't had very good kombucha. I said, I don't think there is any. <laughs> but I drink it because it's supposed to be good for your digestive system and help you and have some micro probiotics down there that help and all your immune. And I do stuff I don't want to do regularly so I can be late for my appointment with the grave so I can live long enough to try to see what we're, go- what we're called to do here accomplished. Now, even though it may not It may not happen in my lifetime. I'm working so that at least it will happen. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. See, the people in that generation would not have known anything about the incarnation. They just would have heard, oh, there's help. There's help from the next generation. There's help. If we we just keep having babies, we'll be okay. That's what they thought. If we just keep burying children, somebody or a group of somebodies are going to come and help us. And so we as a congregation prepare in much the same way, realizing that, gosh, we may not be able to fulfill everything we want in this generation, but there's Juan Winans and Lisa. There's Jared and, and Joanna Green. There's Stephen and Elise Law. There's Miata. There are a whole lot of people in the second generation that we are training to be great. So, when I am not here and somebody who's 20-something is preaching, you get happy. Thank you very much. You get happy. You don't come in when you don't see the stool come out. You don't go... You get happy. Why? Because I'm thinking about what, what life's going to be like in 2050. Who's going to carry on the vision that God spoke to me? And this isn't just a good idea I've had. I, 
this, this, this vision's bigger than me. And the reason I'm pursuing it is because Jesus himself spoke it to me. He came to me in 2000, year 2000, December, in my hotel room when I was at a conference. And he told me two things and then left. This never happened before. I know people who see Jesus like every three weeks. That doesn't happen to me. And it's, it's never, it never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. He came into my hotel room, and he said, just two things. I want you to believe me for the city, and I'll send you the men. And left. I was shocked. I was just doing my devotions. That's all. I was, I was reading my Bible, doing my devotions. And he showed up. I went, uh, can, you, can I ta- ask? No questions. That's all he said. And he left. And I have had that lodged in my soul inexorably for the last 18 years. So I live with it. It wakes me up every day. God, I got to do this. But I don't know that I'll live long enough. So, unto us a child is born. I heard it like they heard it in their generation. We just got to keep having babies. Now, we can have the babies, but we can't produce sons. God is the only one who can make a son that is his. He's the only one. He's still got to give us sons. We can have human beings, but we need sons of God to carry on the vision. And so that's what we're believing for. And when we talk about hiring people here or deploying people, we do our best not just to deploy or hire on the basis of talent. There are people who come to us all the time who think they can really bless us and help us. And they are amazing in their abilities astounding but we let them know we, are, we, we, we admire what you can do but you can't help us until you become us we're not, we're not making clones we're just making sure that leaders say the same thing on a regular basis so that you don't get different messages in different realms of our church and this is what we talk about when we talk about excellent government are we practicing it best as we can we have our flaws but we're doing our best to make sure that the same message is preached in children's ministry that's preached in our Latino church, that's preached in our youth ministry that's preached from here, that's preached in our worship and song team, that's preached in Sterling. Everybody feels the same thing, same value system, same kind of message, same kind of standard of holiness and purity. It won't be the same voice piece. It won't be the same personality. It will come out differently as expressed through how God made that person. But there will be no difference in the value and the vision. So that you can sit there and say, man, if Pastor Brett ever is taken out, if something happens to him, this thing will go on the same way. Same vision, same passion. Because sons are given to us. And we train them. And those kind of people, it says God rests government. He allows government to rest on their shoulders. Why? Because you can trust them. I can't trust gifted people. I can trust charactered people. And the only way you can really know somebody's charactered and worthy of trust is to test them. When, you, when people build a bridge after they finish, you know what they do it, with it afterwards? They drive a heavy truck across it. They test it to see whether it's trustworthy. In order to be found trustworthy here, you're going to have to be tested. 
That's the only way we know whether trust can be given so that you will not fail in your deployment of your, of your responsibility in the area where you're supposed to serve. You never trust anything you haven't tested. Not smart. Not smart. And so the government rests on his shoulders because he is the ultimate one who is the ultimate character. And as it rests, he does a couple of things with it. One, he knows how to expand it well. This government is stable. This government is that which has no end to it, meaning no end in time. It will just keep going as he keeps going because it's his government and he will never stop. He will never end. Secondly, it always increases. It'll increase until it covers the entire earth or the universe, for that matter, whatever it means to have God's rule on Mars. I don't know. But whatever it means, the government will increase and there will be no end to it. And it will not only just increase in terms of influence, it will increase and have no end in terms of peace. Of the end of the increase of the government, there will be none and there will be peace. God wants to bring peace to your life. He's really good at this. And everything about this passage is not only what God will send in order to redeem us, but what he will bring in order to help us live right here. Everybody wants good government. Children want it from their parents. They don't want hypocrisy in the house. They're not looking for perfect. They're just looking for good. And we have elections every year trying to elect good. Sometimes we don't get there. We just don't have the people necessary to, the options are limited. But we're trying to get good government so that we can live in what? Peace. Of the end, of the increase of his government, there will be none. And of peace. God wants to bring peace to your life. The kind of peace that allows you to even ride through storms as if they don't exist. Peace that allows for conflict to bypass you sometimes. As you grow in God, it's not... I experience difficulty in my life just like you. But the difficulty I experience is that which I, I feel differently than you. Number one... I'm not creating my own storms. I try not to do that very often. (coughs) Secondly, the things that I'm experiencing with respect to conflict or adversity in my life that I used to experience 20 years ago just don't affect me like they used to. Where I get all torn up on the inside and wonder what's going to happen tomorrow and am I going to make it through this? I've been through them. So they go past and winds blow but I'm sitting on my porch just in my chair, just rocking. Just ain't no big deal. Now, there are big storms that come my way. But because I've been through some things, and those big storms, I feel. I mean, I feel them. But I, 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 I approach them differently than I used to simply because I've been through enough, and my house has stood. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Two guys were in church. One of them heard, did. The other one heard, did not. The guy who heard and did not built his house on sand. The guy who heard and did built his house on the rock. Both of them had a storm come through. We can't get away from the storm. You you are right around the corner from the next one. 
So since you can't get away from it, make sure when it's not there that you're doing the right thing, which means building, not just hearing. That when you hear what you hear this morning, do on Monday what you ought to do that's necessary for your construction so you can build that which will stand the storm. Obey. The storm came, blew out the guy's house that was built on sand. Nothing left. The guy who built on rock, okay, he had some shutters gone. Shingles flew off, windows broke, but he was dry. He was dry and he was safe. You got to build when there's no storm because it's impossible to build when the storm is there. But you are always reminded if you have not built when the storm wasn't there, when the storm does come, you're always reminded, you know, I need to build. But it's too late when the storm's there because you can't build in a storm. So the time to build is now in the absence of the storm. Peace is that which gives you, you what you need on the inside. So that you can go through stuff. And sometimes the peace on the inside can affect the circumstances on the outside. Sometimes. Sometimes. Jesus said to the disciples, we're going to the other side in Mark. I think it's chapter 3 or 4. We're going to the other side. They got on the boat. They started crossing the sea. Storm came up out of no place. This storm was furious. So furious that the disciples thought they were going to drown. And these were seasoned fishermen who had been on this lake for, for their whole life. This is what they did for a living. They never experienced a storm like this. They were drowning. They thought they were going to drown, and they were bailing, and, and they couldn't bail fast enough. More water was coming in than they could get out. And Jesus was in the hull of the boat asleep. Asleep. Now, everybody was working hard to make sure they didn't drown. The sh ship didn't go down. But Jesus wasn't working at all. Can you imagine the attitude they had toward Christ? I mean, the last thing you want to do is blame him for anything. But you ain't helping, dude. We're all going down. That means you. And you ain't helping. Last, at the last, last resort, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus gets up, gets on the bow of the boat, and says, Shh. Hush. Be still. Immediately, the winds stopped, and the sea became calm. Dripping sailors... Tired, worn out after hours of bailing, frantic in their soul from anxiety, looking at Jesus. How'd you do? Winds obey you? We don't even obey you. <laughs> Winds obey you? How? And the seas too? Sometimes the peace that is on the inside can affect the storm on the outside. The reason Jesus was able to calm the storm is because he didn't have one raging in here. And when you've got storms that cause this to get unsettled, all you do is agree with what's on the outside. And fear and anxiety begin to rule your heart. This is why Jesus gives you a peace. Peter calls it, or Paul calls it this in Philippians, a peace which passes all understanding. And it guards your heart and mind and, and doesn't allow you to accuse God of his care for you. Doesn't allow you to let fear come in, which is actually veiled doubt and unbelief that, that God is really going to help. But faith rises in the midst of the difficulty. And sometimes you can speak and everything else gets quiet. That's the kind of peace Jesus wants to come and bring. You talk about an excellent governor. 
And then he gives all these, these names, Isaiah does. And he will be called, and every one of these is related to government. It's related to government. It's the kind of rule that God wants to bring to our life. Wonderful counselor. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you put somebody in office, when you have a ruler that is called yours, you want him to be wise because he's got to make some decisions that are going to be hard and you want him to make the best decisions. What does wise counsel do except make great decisions? What does wonderful counsel do except bring the right solution to the right problem? Wonderful counselor. And then if he's got the ability to make the decision, you surely want to make sure he's got the power to pull it off. Mighty God. Mighty God. This is the kind of government that Jesus brings to our lives. And remember, he is a governor. First thing he said when he came out of the wilderness, having been tempted by the enemy, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus was bringing the kingdom. And it says in Matthew chapter 4 that he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation. Now, the gospel of salvation is that which we receive that gets us right. It means he, we believe he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. As a result, gives us the privilege of taking a part of his sacrifice for all who would believe and ask for repentance, ask for forgiveness and repent of their sins. That's basically the gospel of salvation in a nutshell. But the gospel of the kingdom adds to that in that he's bringing an order that allows us to live best and we need to submit to that order on a regular basis in order to live best. A rule, a realm he is trying to give us so that we know what is right to do. And he comes with power, mighty God, everlasting Father. I don't have time, but he is a progenitor that will never stop producing. He is a God that never is impotent. He never has the inability to recreate or to create. He always has the ability to make something out of nothing. And you want, in impossible circumstances, for your God to do the miraculous. You want him to be able to bring to bear all of his creative power to your unusually difficult and naughty situation and fix it. And then lastly, Prince of Peace. We talked about what it means for him to have rulership of peace in your life. The final thing is that he said, I'm going to accomplish this with zeal. But the kind of zeal with which he's going to accomplish it is, is a zeal that is, is obviously not without wisdom. You, you, you know those people who are very zealous for something but don't have a lot of restraint and don't have a really good plan? It's like they run 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. Boy, good effort, but you missed the mark 100%. I mean, you didn't even hit the dartboard. You're someplace around the wall over there. God accomplishes what he's going to accomplish with zeal. But the operative term that we need to see here, which he employs intentionally, is, is the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's not just a flowery phrase to help us feel like God has some degree of power beyond ours. Hosts actually is a military term. That God will act like a warrior on your behalf. Man is not able to save himself couldn't do it on his own we were sons of of adam and daughters of eve there's no way we could fix us no matter how many kids we had it didn't fix anything the next generation couldn't do it on their own we needed god to intervene to help us 
And he brought about a, a man that was different. A man who was all God and yet all man. Didn't have the bit nature like we've, we, we've inherited from Adam. And so God was able to do that. But he did it all by himself in, in the, the, the face of opposition constantly. Even when Christ came. Somebody tried to kill him because he thought he was a, a threat to his throne. Herod tried to kill him. Opposition from every... Can you, we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks with Mary's parents. Can you believe what they may have said? Baby girl, we raised you better than this. Can't believe you got pregnant while you were engaged. I mean, pregnant out of bad, wedlock is bad, but that man paid a bride price to get you. How could you do this? And then Joseph... I mean, the Lord had to move a whole lot of influential personalities around in Mary's life just to bring this to pass. He was fighting for us. And God fights for you regularly. He's not passively sitting on the throne just saying, I hope it works out. Every day, the Lord of the greatest armies of heaven is using his military might and all of his strategy to bring about his perfect will in your life. You need to know that. He cares about you like that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And indeed, he did it 2,000 years ago with the birth of Christ. And whatever he wants to do in your life now, if he did it then, he can do it again. He can bring about the birth of things in your life that need to be need to come out that you can't do on your own. He can do the miracles that need to be done to quiet the storms. He can do everything that is necessary to accomplish his purposes in your life, even when it looks darkest. You who sit in darkness and great doom, a great light is coming to you. Receive that which he wants to give and allow his perfect will to be done so that your life can count on the planet in the short 70 or 80 you got. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us to be the kind of people who can do your will, your way.